1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Degena Door, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Courtney Bruntz and Dr. Brooke Shetnek about their new edited volume, Buddhist Tourism in Asia, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2020. Dr. Bruntz and Dr. Shetnek, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you. And um, I wonder if we can begin the interview with some self instructions and um, maybe please tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you became interested in Asia and contemporary Buddhism, specifically the topic of tourism.
3: Um, so that's always a tough question for me. I don't know if I have like one real like moment or thing that made me want to um, go into this topic, but I was always interested in different cultures when I went into college, like different ways that people found meaning in their lives and in the world. So uh, that led me to religious studies and as a major. And then I never really looked back from that. And I just kept studying it. And I took a, a kind of winding path to Southeast Asia through Japan, where I was uh, teaching English and and thinking about studying there a bit before I uh, went to grad school and and uh, decided on Thailand, and took my first initial research trips there and could really see a lot of um, interesting research topics just with the different kinds of material culture there and practices and and everything that was going on there. I could see a lot of um, a lot of interesting themes uh, for, for me that I would be really interested in. So I wrote my first um, book and dissertation and research project on international meditation centers in in Thailand. And then um, from there, I just kind of could see Buddhist tourism um, more broadly as I lived in, lived in Chiang Mai um, for about eight years. I moved to Thailand, actually, after I got a Fulbright, in my third year, of my PhD program. And then I never really moved back to the U S until I got my current position in, at Rhodes college in 2017. So living there, um, I was really able to, and, and teaching there and teaching a study abroad program there. I was really able to see like on the ground, the effects of tourism. And I was able to really, um, Understand contemporary Buddhism and uh, kind of align my skills and interests with that, while uh, while while being there, and I miss it now, and I hope to go back soon. But I'm I'm interested to hear Courtney's story. <laughs> you know,
1: I had a, a family member who was Buddhist, and and that very much was impressionable to me, and then when i was in college i happened to study abroad in asia and when i when i stepped foot in china i had this weird over uh, overstimulating sensation that i was home and so china, china really began to feel like a place of residence and so changed my change my major in college and um, started studying chinese and and continued to study religion and then then moved to china after after college to teach and It's really been it's really been beckoning me (laughs) ever since. And and similar to Brooke, you know, when you are living abroad, you really begin to see these these various components of a culture because you're a tourist too. you're you're a resident and you're a tourist, but you're not um, you're not you're not someone who who is from the area. And so it really became interesting to me to see the changes that were happening in China, especially before the Olympics and then after the Olympics with with Buddhist temples. And so now in my current position um, at Doan University, where I'm an assistant professor of Asian religions, I've been taking students on study abroad and, and still really thinking about these questions of what does it mean? for Buddhists to engage in tourism and just the ongoing innovations and translations of, of Buddhists today to, to remain relevant to young folks um, with, with all these changing circumstances.
2: Thank you for sharing that, uh, both of you, and I hope it will be safer for our, all of us to go back to our fields once again. Um, so before we jump into the book, uh, please tell us a little bit about how this book project began. Um, so what inspired you to invite all these scholars to participate in this edit volume on tourism and in, in Buddhism?
3: Well, I'll, I'll start and then uh, we'll see what uh, Courtney can uh, fill in maybe about the
2: participants
3: part. But um, I think like we, we both said, we we're both interested in tourism. We we're kind of seeing that in our uh, field sites and noticing that there was maybe some conversation around it, but really not much um, scholarship going on. There, and uh, we had both been to an IBS conference, it was the International Association of Buddhist Studies uh, conference, and it was in Vienna in two thousand and fourteen. So that's when this germinated six years ago. So we there I remember that there was a presenter that didn't show up, and we were both at this like contemporary Buddhism session. And we had both kind of known each other's names from a graduate conference on Buddhist tourism. I think that Courtney had been organizing. And so we left that panel and we kind of found each other and started talking and comparing our research. And then when I returned home, I sent her an article that I wrote about um, international meditation centers and tourism in Thailand. And, and I said, you know, I have the idea. Maybe we should try and work on something to do with this, like like an edited volume. And she wrote back saying she had had the same idea. So it was really great that we could uh, work on that together. And we had a workshop through the University of Oregon where Courtney had her first job. And um, we gathered uh, people together there. And and maybe Courtney will um, talk about that, how we found the participants. But I just would say that it's been great to work with Courtney. And if other people listening are thinking about co-editing a book with others I think like you should consider the other people or person that you want to work with I mean I just happened to luck out because I didn't know Courtney beforehand but it was very um, nice to work with her because we always made sure that everything was equal like from our writing of our introduction to the very end when we were doing our splitting up our index we were making that and I think that that really came from the fact that we were both in almost exactly the same place in our careers and that was extremely helpful in allowing us to understand each other and relate to each other and then we became good friends in the process. You just had to bring up the index,
1: That's <laughs> what a painful process. <laughs> Yeah, it's been such a lovely experience, and um, this is this is the ideal, I think, when you're doing scholarship like this, and you're you are able to engage in a partnership and to complement each other's skills. And yeah, we were very fortunate. Um, I had a visiting position at Oregon State, and they gave us some funding to hold the conference. And having a book off of a workshop, I think Brooke would agree, really really helped because we created those interpersonal relationships with our authors as well. And so having that shared experience, um, they had kind of gone on a pilgrimage, right. (laughs) In that sense of coming to Corvallis. And so that really, I think helped create these relationships, which helps with the writing process. Um, So Oregon state for uh, fortunately gave us some funding um, to help with the conference. And then we also received funding from the association for Asian studies. Um, So we need to recognize them as well. And we, Uh, both Brooke and I kind of made a list of our ideal writers and we invited those folks to come to to Corvallis. And then for the edited volume as well, we also put out a call for additional um, potential authors as well.
3: Yeah, great. I'll just add that, you know, to work with, um, we like complemented each other really well because I knew some people in Southeast Asia, a little bit in South Asia. And then Courtney knew all the people in East Asia. And these people, you know, now are part of my network and I never really knew them before, but I wouldn't have had access to this kind of scholarship of Mahayana Buddhism otherwise.
2: Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, this is a really welcomed addition to the growing scholarship on Buddhist tourism, uh, specifically in contemporary Asia, right? Um, So first of all, I was wondering um, how this idea of Buddhist tourism means in the context of this Eda volume. Um, Can you maybe clarify this for us? I was wondering, um, for example, how is it different from traditional forms of Buddhist pilgrimage?
1: So what we've seen a lot with scholarship and what Brooke and I were noting in our own work is that um, authors tended to separate tourism from pilgrimage. And that really wasn't what our site visits were showing us. Our site visits were really showing us that that these kind of binary categories of sacred and secular of pilgrim and tourists, it just didn't capture what was happening on the ground. And so when we are thinking about Buddhist tourism, we're thinking about activities and, and actions and reverence that are happening happening at sites associated with Buddhism. And so you see ardent pilgrims who will spend the day um, performing uh, rites of veneration, and then they'll go and do KTV at night, right, as part of the, their activities. And so just as people are very multivalent and people are fluid, so too are these sites. And so our idea really wa- was aimed at capturing the fluidity of spaces capturing the fluidity of activities occurring in in these sites of buddhist tourism um and doing so by looking at case studies so that we could really do um do an ethnographic volume that focused on on the activities of practitioners
2: thank you um that really clarifies it thank you and and the edit volume is divided into three parts right so the first part Um, entitled Buddhist Imaginaries and Placemaking uh, features four really interesting chapters on how Buddhism is marketed and promoted to domestic and international tourists, as well as how these imaginaries sort of sediment over time. Um, And the first two chapters are, I found them really interesting when you read them kind of in a juxtaposed way. So David Gehry's chapter on Bodh Gaya shows us how powerful the Buddhist imaginary is in promoting sacred spaces to the tourist gaze. And then um, John uh, Mixick's chapter reveals the impact of disconnecting the Buddhist imaginary on tourist sites um, like the Tiger Bomb Gardens in Singapore. So in these two cases, how is Buddhism imagined by the tourists and non-tourists um, alike? And what are the consequences of these imaginaries?
3: Thank you, Daigina, for your question on imaginaries. And this is one of our main theoretical ideas that I think kind of runs through all of the chapters, but we put some of them, you know, fit more into it than others. And, and imaginaries is a kind of a, a loose term, but I think it's so important and necessary um, because I think we all can understand that we have an imaginary of a place, you know, before we travel there um, and how that kind of interacts with our um, understanding when, when on the ground when we get there. And so we're not thinking about imaginary as, you know, like one, you know, one kind of Buddhist imaginary. And we're, we're you know, kind of aware of the diversity and multifaceted nature of this term as we look in these different places um, throughout the different chapters. Um, so there's, of course, no one imaginary of Buddhism and no like one kind of tourist imaginary. Um, so, that, I mean, and that's part of the work of this volume to show the different variations and interpretations on Buddhist imaginaries from these different kinds of actors. And so I'll try to represent the arguments of the of the authors of these chapters, but uh, I, I'll try and do as best I can. I wish they were all here to talk about it, but I, I guess that will be really difficult for scheduling reasons. So I'll, I'm just going to try my best that um, uh, David Geary's chapter on... Um, The imaginary of peace is really, it is really interesting to um, juxtapose uh, with the the following chapter, like Taigina said, because um, he is talking about like the imaginary of peace is so kind of like vague and diffuse in a way. Um, But I think that, you know, that's a kind of a resonant imaginary with many uh, people, especially those who don't know much about Buddhism, you know, the Buddha sitting in his meditation pose and kind of meditation in peace is the kind of one of, one of the dominant um, images that in Bodh Gaya in India that um, kind of tourist relations and, and uh, state campaigns have taken advantage of that David Geary notes like uh, the kind of branding of Blissful Bihar, where, where Bodh Gaya is located. Um, and it's a, a kind of zone of peace. Um, but he notes how this imaginary of peace really obscures the reality of what's going on in the state of Bihar uh, politically and, and economically. So you have this like idea of this is the space of the Buddha's enlightenment where there is this kind of resonance of his um, achievement and you know the peacefulness that that brings, but then, there's this extreme poverty in the region and economic underdevelopment. And so um, Geary really explores this contrast uh, really deeply uh, between these Buddhist imaginaries and ideals. And then the on the ground, political and economic causes and conditions in the area. And and so then John Mixick's chapter on the Tiger Bomb Gardens in Singapore is... Um, interesting to to think about those in, in connection because the argument is almost the opposite because we can see the ways that imaginaries resonate differently here. So he, John Mixick, he's talking about how the Tiger Bomb Gardens, like in the 1930s, they had a really strong connection to the imaginary Buddhism, in particular, the narratives of, um, like Buddhist cosmology of, of particularly hell Uh, depictions of hell and other kinds of uh, Chinese folk religious iconography. And then he traces how this was kind of lost over the decades as a private company came in in um, 2015 and really kind of disconnected the site from any of these Buddhist imaginaries. And this um, was not successful in terms of revenue or or tourist numbers. And so Mixig believes that if that connection to buddhist cosmology if we have that kind of specific uh imaginary of the hell realms and and with that comes the motivation to follow buddhist morality then that he thinks that the tiger bomb gardens could be uh, more more successful with with the use of that imaginary and since it has lost that imaginary there's nothing really like specific tying it to anything Within, you know, interesting within the tourist gaze anymore. So, from these both chapters, we have like comparing the diffuse imaginary of peace in Bodh Gaya with the more specific imaginary of the Buddhist cosmology that was previously on display in the Tiger Bomb Gardens. Um, so, we have like the specific imaginary that is crucial in making a place distinctive, and then in the other, the kind of more vague imaginary of peace that obscures a lot of the realities that are going on.
2: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And um, these tourist gaze, right, these imaginaries also make places, right? Um, so the other two chapters of part one addresses the issues of placemaking, uh, which also really re- reflect these kinds of associated imaginaries. And and Dr. Shenik, um, in your chapter, right, you talk about how frequent tourism actually influenced how Buddhism is presented and also practiced uh, in Chiang Mai temples in Thailand. So my question is, what kind of relationship um, do the Chiang Mai Buddhists have with the tourists? And you also point out really interestingly that um, there seems to be some divergent views between monks and uh, lay Thai Buddhists with regard to tourism. Can you tell us more about this? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I'll take on this question by my own my own chapter, and then and then we'll hear from Courtney <laughs> soon. Um, so yeah, for me, I'm I'm trying to develop and understand the space of the temple and how that relates to tourists in this chapter and i i do juxtapose the lay view with the monas you know a kind of with the monastic view in in, in Chiang Mai where i conducted my fieldwork but for me it's always been difficult to get like a representative qualitative understanding of lay buddhist views especially on tourism because they don't stay in the temple often very long. You know, they might go in, do their thing with merit making and then leave. They might not even notice if tourists are there. Um, They're not really like paying attention to it unless, you know, they might notice if, you know, there's a foreign monk or if there's like a tourist that's acting like really, you know, appropriately and like respectfully or there's a a tourist acting really inappropriately. So I, I had to rely on kind of some media moments uh, when Thai Buddhists were shocked and outraged, as the commentary goes in the um, Thai and English media about this, um, when Thai tourists, uh, when when Thai Buddhists look at the the tourists' um, actions and they kind of. Uh, decide that they're inappropriate and that they kind of take away from the sacredness of the place. And it also kind of takes away from the lay Buddhists, you know, understanding of the place and and, uh, as a sacred place, and also their kind of ownership over the, over the nature of the place. So, I mean, in none of the cases, in, in none of the chapters, have we seen anything like tourists, you know, just taking over and like, nobody cares, you know, like there's places that Need to be, you know, there needs to be some kind of Buddhism maintained here, um, e- even in places that have like a lot of tourists. And so that's a kind of like the the kind of worry I think uh, of some of the of the Thai Buddhists that you know, the tourists might just not know the ways to behave, and um, that could lead to a kind of um, desacralization de- of the place. And so Thai Buddhists have a idea called galatesa and it means that you kind of align your behavior and your appearance to to the place and so you show your respect and your understanding of the respect for the, of that place that should be respected through your um actions and so i look at moments like um tourists doing yoga. yoga in you know inappropriate outfits touching each other um with like the stupas in the background as a as a kind of nice photo or um, A person wearing beach attire to the to the temple, and so Thai Buddhists, you know, kind of get upset about this because uh, of of the reasons I stated before. But for monks, it's a lot different because they live in the temples and they can see a different side to the tourists. They're not just looking at the kind of bad moments um, or you know only only the good moments. They can kind of see the the medium where there's tourists who are respectful of the place and they're basically curious and interested in what's going on and want to know more. And so I look at the different kinds of cultural exchange programs that uh, student monks in particular have set up so that they can answer tourist questions, be in dialogue with them, teach them a little bit about Buddhism and the monastic life. And so they think of it as a way to let tourism, to let um, tourism as a way to let Buddhism spread uh, rather than um, being as concerned with defacing the sacredness of the temple.
2: Thank you. Yeah, It's a really fascinating chapter to read. And, and the other chapter in part one, written by Justin uh, Reisinger, we're presented with a really interesting kind of situation of contestation. Over Buddhist placemaking, right? So the competition between Mount Xuedo and Mount Fanjing um, to become the next true home uh, for Maitreya, the, the future Buddha. And so that's the fifth sacred mountain in China. Um, so here, Risinger argues that. Buddhist placemaking rests not only on the public imaginary of what Buddhist places should be, or its sort of uh, spiritual efficacy, but also on more pragmatic considerations. Uh, so tell us more about the processes of marketing matreya, the term used uh, in this chapter. What factors go into the creation of a sacred place uh, in contemporary China, for example?
1: Yeah, so Justin's chapter is really lovely. It, it points to to the idea that historically sites were they were sacred and they were famous because they had linked they had this numinous power um, perhaps pilgrims had an image of the resident uh, Bodhisattva that w- that was there and this this sparked pilgrimage but what we have in contemporary China is is an interesting coming together of various forms of capital and this is what his chapter does so nicely is by comparing these two sites and really seeing how they are both claiming um, their location to be the authentic home of Maitreya, we begin to see how important social, economic, and cultural capital play um, into this. And so sometimes that's historical, right? Sometimes sites are going to to get cultural capital from from the historical connections between Maitreya and the location. But what's also really important important that he points out is the social capital. Um, And a lot of this... Will come from the social networks that that are part of that mountain. Um, the role of spectacle. So he talks quite a bit about the the colossal images of of, of the Buddha that are that are created there of, of Maitreya Buddha that are created there. So Shoe Do's Grand Buddha. Um, holds advantage for that site because it's it's a spectacle. And it's a symbol that very much represents Maitreya, that represents um, a recognizable form. And if you have an unrecognizable form, then that is actually potentially going to hurt the social capital that you gain. And so really what we see with his chapter is that sites in contemporary China are competing with each other, um, that they're... We have a large set of of Chinese citizens who are mobile, who are able to be tourists, and it's really up to the site to draw them in. And history isn't always enough to to be the reason um, why why they come. So Shuaido does have advantages um, that come from history, but really what he argues is that that Xue Do has advantages because um, there has been a skill set with 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 the residents there that have been woven into the site, into, into these currents of, of contemporary Chinese culture. And Maitreya as a symbol, as being represented in this, in this colossal image has really helped associate um, the idea, associate the mountain with the idea that this is, this is truly um, Maitreya's form and location. Um, Fangjing does as well. You know, the, the official claim is that the mountain is the sanctuary of Maitreya's true form. But by comparing the two, what we begin to see is that um, it's really important that that there is a connection with with local government officials. There is a connection between a site and other forms of tourism, such as things like ecotourism. And really what he argues is that at Mount Fengjing, the cultural products are less effectively marketed. And so, really what's seen in this chapter is the understanding that for a site to be successful um, in in China today as a location for Buddhist tourism, it's not just the numinous power that's present, but it really is coming down to the disparity in cultural and economic capital that's going to be compounded with differences in social capital.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: Thank you. And speaking of secular uh, entities and secular powers, right, uh, this is sort of the focus in uh, part two of the book um, entitled Secularizing the Sacred. So here um, it reveals, interestingly, that Buddhist tourism actually tend to create alliances with secular forces as strategies to promote um, their traditions and sacred sites. So here John Marston's chapter on Cambodian pilgrimage groups in India and Sri Lanka covers this alliance um, between the Cambodian pilgrims and their tourist companies. And then uh, Matthew True's chapter shows this alliance between Angkor Wat and its surrounding non-Buddhist spaces. Um, so what's really interesting in these two chapters is sort of the overlapping imaginaries of Buddhist space imagined by uh, the international Buddhist tourists, the Buddhist sites themselves, um, and also participating in secular entities. Um, So I guess my question is, what are the drives behind these overlapping imaginaries and efforts at placemaking?
3: Okay, thank you for this question. I like how you've combined these two chapters, which both discuss Cambodian Buddhism in different ways. In uh, John Marston's chapter, he's talking about Cambodian pilgrims on pilgrimage to important Buddhist sites in Sri Lanka and Cambodia and the different kinds of imaginaries and placemakings that they have to kind of negotiate on their uh travels. And so they have to they have to engage with the, the merit economy because that's like the main point of their trip is to be merit making. But at the same time there's these kinds of uh secular um, incursions from, you know, the fact that they're traveling, they're part of an economic marketplace, you know, while they're, um, abroad and, you know, just in their daily lives as lay people as well. Um, and then they're also, while they're traveling, uh, negotiating their own ideas about Buddhism from their own history as Cambodian Buddhists with particular kinds of practices. Um, and that, how this kind of is, uh, different from some of the practices that they see of Theravada Buddhism in India, when they encounter that. And so this negotiation isn't always easy, um, especially when, as Marston notes, that there's um, like always kind of a, a concern and a, and a defensiveness, if anything, uh, related to terms like tourism or like the kind of tourism companies and the business aspect of it or the package deals that this pilgrim groups would have booked because they want things to stay much more focused on um, things that would be more acceptable to them, like, you know, part of part of their Pilgrimage would be, you know, it's merit making. Um, that's what that's what it's really about. It's about the merit economy, about the donations that they're making there. Um, and so the effort at making this uh, pilgrimage was to really maintain the idea of sacredness, uh, but then any kind of connection with, to tourism uh, was deemed as kind of more secular and therefore lesser. So we can we do see that there is some kind of binary going on here, um, you know, that, that still kind of exists, although, you know, it's, although it's very hard to negotiate in, you know, in reality. And then, um, Matthew True's chapter is looking at Battambang in Cambodia and here they're kind of building on the imaginaries of Angkor Wat and the uh, idea of the, the kind of ruins that are, are the main tourist draw in Cambodia. But in Battambang they don't really have this kind of ruin so they're kind of banking on the tourists uh, temple fatigue which I didn't know was a real thing but uh, he references it as as a real thing among tourists and I just thought it was something that I experienced even myself when I was when I was uh, in in Asia but in in Battambang um, what they have done is rely on a thematic tourism which kind of in interacts with the imaginaries of Buddhism and Angkor Wat and like the idea of, of Cambodia for the tourists. So they all are they're, He they're drawing on the on the ideas of Buddhism and national history. So true identifies uh, three themes of these different sites that he looks at. There's like the one about Buddhism that's more for international tourists, and there's one about uh, and and Cambodian folklore for domestic tourists, and then there's a site that has to do with the genocide of, of Cambodia. And then there's one that's more like, for everyone, the one the wonder of nature. Um, and so like my chapter, he finds that there's this contestation over tourism in, in his some of his ethnographic work there, that some of the managers of the sites are welcoming for the tourists, welcoming the money that they provide to improve temples and others would maybe, would prefer it to maintain its quiet, um, sacred nature. So for both of the chapters, the various imaginaries of Cambodian Buddhists in India and in Cambodia um, and there's different imaginaries for international tourists who visit Cambodia as well. And we can understand um, through, the, through these the different ways that managers and promoters of tourist sites and pilgrim groups learn, they learn how to adjust the, to the different imaginaries of the different groups. Um, that that we can see in like the the wonder of nature for the temple fatigued international tourists, and then the kind of exclusive framing of sacredness and merit making for the Cambodian pilgrimage, uh, Cambodian pilgrims. So um, I think we can see like which parts of Buddhism then are the most fundamental, and which can be kind of adjusted for which individuals and how they make those arguments, and we can see which practices and ideas like all right. Are, are critiqued or accepted, and and when those take place.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting that it kind of it's a very organic industry, right? Of Buddhist tourism involving all kinds of agents and participants, Um, it's fascinating. And and the other two chapters of this part, two of the book um, addresses similar case studies in China and Japan, right? So Dr. Brunt's, your chapter here, along with uh, Ian Reader's chapter, discusses how Buddhists in contemporary China and Japan, respectively, are utilizing secular means to enhance and also revitalize tourism, Um, however, coming from very different concerns. Um so what's the relationship between Buddhists and the secular forces in these two countries addressed in your chapters um, why are they similarly finding secular means such as commercial tourism and technology really useful for religious expansions
1: Yeah thank you um so it's it's an interesting comparison because you know readers work um he, he throughout you know many years has has always really encouraged us, us to to understand um, Buddhist um, engaging in commercial operations as part of skillful means, as part of survival, especially in Japan. Um, and so, when we think of that word survival, it's really helpful for seeing a crossover between the case of China and the case of Japan. Um, so, with the case of Japan, you know, his work has talked has has spoken largely to um, really getting people engaged in spirituality and really religiosity and that Buddhists have had to turn to commercial operators in order to continue to attract visitors. Um, and this is also then taken up later in, in Matthew Mitchell's chapter as well. Is that in order to continue to to really attract visitors, that they've needed to engage in these partnerships. That's very strategic. And so he his work really turns to um, looking at what are the commercial agencies that that Buddhists have turned to. Even coming down to, he speaks about posters and advertisements. He talks about national rail companies that they create they create very skillful skillful partnerships with in order to. Ensure that the temples are on on the mind states of of Japanese citizens, um, and from my work, I, I see that really similarly in China as well. Um, especially when we think about Buddhist sites, are engaged in a commercial um, operation. They are engaged in in, in a capitalist um, society where they are competing with other heritage sites, and this is something that that a lot of the authors throughout. Our entire volume we'll talk about is is the more that they are selling their site as as cultural and and a site of heritage that they are able to attract visitors and that helps them to survive. We see that strongly in the case of China as well. Um, So in the case of China, what we have is. The gov- you know government operations will create Buddhist heritage sites, they'll create Buddhist cultural sites. And these are locations that um, Buddhist temples have to compete with and mountains have to compete with. And so what I'm I'm seeing is that, and similar to the case of, of Japan, is that it is really skillful means for Buddhists to engage with secular forces for them to um, make use of technologies that are available to them, make use of platforms for marketing that are available to them. So similar to what um, Ian Reeder writes about in regards to Japan, of thinking about agencies that are going to spread marketing through poster ads, my work looks at how... Um, Buddhist monks are making use of Internet platforms, making use of WeChat, um, these sorts of of avenues and platforms to turn their messages digital, um, to propagate the Dharma in that way, and to create create opportunities for young people to engage in, in discourse with monastics that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise. So when I was interviewing um, monks in China, I kind of asked them about this. I asked, you know, what do they think about this? And they saw this as, as being part of the 21st century, um, as that this, this is their, their new text, I suppose is going, going online is their new text. And so what we see in, in both of the chapters is that, um, it's really for survival for various reasons, of course, in Japan, um, we have, we have population concerns, we have concerns about maintaining tradition, of, of enticing young people to want to be religious, but we have those same concerns in China as well, of, of really encouraging young people to go to temples, to be interested in Buddhism, and so what monks are doing is they are using platforms that they figure young people are already on, like WeChat, and using that as an avenue, as skillful means um to continue to attract um, young people to to be interested in Buddhism.
2: Yeah, thank you. These are really fascinating chapters, both of them. and and they also in a way engage with um, I guess commodification of Buddhism or presenting it through uh, commodities uh, such as sweet chats. Um, and this is sort of the center of attention uh, in part three, um, which shifts our discussion to commodification and its consequences. So Brian Nichols' chapter um, takes a really interesting emic approach and shows that commodification is actually not necessarily at odds with Buddhism, nor is it a very new phenomenon. And Elizabeth William uh, Warburg's chapter on the commodification of Buddhism as a unique selling uh, preposition, USP, in Lodak she shows this and confirms this. And Matthew Mitchell's chapter further gives us a unique case study where uh, romantic love right, becomes the product that is being intentionally commodified on Buddhist sites. So I guess the question that our readers and listeners might be curious about is, so how compatible is Buddhism with commodification and commercialization? And how are these commercially motivated behaviors reconciled in a way with uh, religiosity or, or doctrines? Has there been any voices of opposition?
1: Brian's chapter is, is, is really uh, such a wonderful addition to this volume because what he does very well is he, he sets up this, this great, um, argument that is really useful to all of us, an argument looking at strong and weak commoditization, you know, so s- scholars at, across Asia have really grappled with this idea of, of what does it mean for Buddhists to commodify <laughs> their sites, um, does that fit with the teachings of Buddhism? Um, how do we feel about that? What, do, what does that what does that say? what does that that tell us and, and how do we make sense of that? And I says I said earlier my chapter and Ian's chapter really makes sense of that in terms of skillful means that this is survival. this is a way to continue to attract, attract um, people to to come and venture to, to sites that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise and especially in the midst of, of competition. And Brian comes down on the same idea. He, he talks a lot about the disruptive nature of tourism, which is helpful. Um, you know, tourists are loud, they're noisy. They disrupt, um, activities of meditation that are happening at monasteries. They are sometimes really messy. (laughs) Um, what, has been encouraging sites to to charge exorbitant fees to get in. Has been this competition, and so there are these disruptions from tourism that very much um, cause practitioners to question the authenticity of a site, um, its relevance, and and really whether or not they should they should venture there for spiritual development. And so, what Brian does very nice very nicely, is he points uh, us to thinking about commoditization as strong and weak. So strong commoditization would be in the form of of charging a fee to enter into a temple. But weak commoditization is really when we're thinking about temples that perhaps have a vegetarian restaurant, um, maybe they have a tea shop. Those are just activities that are supporting the institution and what's helpful is that when we begin to think about it in that way, it further cuts through this binary of, of the, the sacred secular discourse, right? It really helps us to think about sites in a different way, as some sites having strong commoditization, some sites having weak commoditization. And he he does see this as, as skillful means as upaya. Um, he comes down, and his central argument really comes down that this is that while tourism does disrupt, um, it is not at, our, at odds with larger Buddhist goals. He really understands the goal of Buddhism to spread the Dharma. And so tourism is not going to be at odds with that. But what helps us to kind of identify and think about temples in a different way is his argument regarding um, strong and weak commoditization. What we see with Mitchell's chapter um, is, again, this this notion of survival. And his chapter is such a fun addition, right? Because his chapter is having to do with people finding love at temples. um, And it's a great chapter for teaching, um, just to to plug it there, because students absolutely love um, hearing about people finding love at Buddhist temples. And what he's looking at is really how temples have remarketed themselves um, in Japan and have done so in a way that isn't—it's um, not necessarily associated with religion. Um, that people's interest in Buddhism is something that they share in common, but really they're they're trying to find love. And so, what his chapter focuses on, and really is is a great insight for us, is to think about the pressures that young people are under—the societal pressures to get married—and um, that Buddhism begins to fill that role. Buddhist sites and priests can really. Promote their location as being a place to find to find a mate, and so he looks at these various programs, um, which helps us to think about the emergence of temple stay programs, connecting back to other chapters in the, in the book. Um, and so it's it's a different way that Buddhist temples are marketing themselves. And again, we see this theme of young people. Um, and so he doesn't. He agrees with. With uh, his his work, then agrees very nicely with Nichols that this isn't going against um, the 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 larger goal of Buddhism because the larger goal of Buddhism, I suppose we could say across all these chapters, is to spread the Dharma to propagate the, the Dharma, um, and it's a it's another form of really encouraging people to come and learn, and that's what we also saw with um, the previous. Chapters as well with readers chapter and my chapter as well is that a lot of Buddhists are seeing tourism as the mechanism to um, entice people to visit the site, but then after visiting the site, maybe they'll learn more about Buddhism. Um, and, and with our last chapter of, of regarding Ladakh, we really see the strong sense of, of Buddhism as, as a unique selling, selling point. And Elizabeth's chapter is really exciting. And, and Brooke, I, I, I wonder if you would, would want to tackle that a little bit because you have visited Ladakh.
3: I have visited Ladakh with Elizabeth, our author herself, um, and Elizabeth, uh, Williams Orberg in this, in this chapter, it's, it's fitting to have it as the last chapter, because it kind of dovetails with um, the other Indian, the other South Asian chapter of David Geary's in the first uh, chapter, because he's talking about this kind of, you know, imaginary peace but in Ladakh, which is uh, in contrast to kind of, uh, it's it's a selling point as a a living kind of buddhism it's like um little tibet in india like you can visit uh, tibetan buddhism in in an indian context and so it's a, in visiting it's a kind of a different kind of india where you can experience buddhism as as it's lived but again it's also just a kind of vague i vague idea of you know buddhism it's because you know it's part of india which normally you would wouldn't associate all of india with um with buddhism but uh elizabeth does uh describe how this kind of idea of just buddhism itself kind of kind of is is in the air in ladakh and how it gets uh promoted as everything kind of like touches onto buddhism um and it helps to increase the the tourism there and she uh, finds that the consumerism and, and commodification don't really, don't really dilute or, or lose any kind of of the sacredness of Buddhist influence in Ladakh. Rather, everyone is very um, interested in enhancing this even more through through the government's promotion of this, uh, through their investment in in tourism, so that both can relate to each other, where um, Buddhists are benefiting from the tourism, from the government promotion, from the, uh, you know, infrastructure improvement, from the, the tourist money, um, as well as, um, you know, tourism, the people are benefiting uh, from from Buddhism. Um, she does go to, in one part, I think of this chapter, she goes and uh, talks to some of the um, Muslim hotel owners, and even they are interested in Connecting the imaginary of their um, space in Ladakh with Buddhism, because you know everyone there kind of understands like this is this is what we have this is this is our brand, and the branding is is kind of working, and and so we can see that the um, you know of course there's there there's some kind of ripples underneath you know we're we're just talking in general here that the that the idea of Buddhism. And this idea of this living Buddhism in Ladakh is uh, people are really um, going going for it, and this idea of the USP that um, Elizabeth described so well.
2: Thank you. Um, I think we've covered uh, most of the chapters, actually all of the chapters, really well already. And uh, I have one more question. That's sort of um, I was wondering, like, what are the effects of COVID nineteen on Buddhist tourism recently? if we, if we know enough um, to say something about this.
3: I've been um, following this, uh, you know, trying to follow this a little bit. There's a lot of discussion in tourism studies about this and like the, and the major, major effects that it's having. Um, I know in Southeast Asia, it's been a a rise in promotion of domestic tourism, especially, you know, especially in Thailand, because that's what, they have to work with. Um, but of course, like so much of the tourism industry has been lost. Um, monks that I know are, have been, um, you know, they're used to talking to tourists and have them as a lot of their uh, programs and dialogue partners. They have transitioned to online. So they're offering a lot of online programs instead and offering a lot of Facebook live streaming, um, like answering questions like they would normally do in the temple. And, you know, they have some participants, maybe some people have already been there um, and, and have made connections with them. It might be hard to make newer connections and to spread Buddhism that way. But they still are very interested in spreading Buddhism and do believe that their teachings and the teachings of the Buddha are extremely relevant for this time. And would like to help people to get through uh, the the pandemic with, you know, teachings like equanimity and um, acceptance and, uh, you know, ac- accepting reality, accepting uncertainty, um, uh, things like that. And advice that they're giving has been uh, helpful to many people, I think, um, so far. But I, I, I really hope that, Um, for the sake of a lot of people's livelihoods that tourism can come back in Asia, because a lot of Southeast Asia, it does rely on that.
2: Yeah, definitely. And and Dr. Bruns, would you like to add something? Um, How is it affecting Buddhist tourism in China, for example?
1: Yeah, so we have seen, you know, quite a drop in, in 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 the revenue, right? And so a lot of the the research that has been coming out regarding China has been similar to what um, Brooke was talking about regarding tourism studies. So a lot of the work that I've been following has been just looking at how much hotel revenue, um, those sorts of things, have have dropped. Um, temples obviously had to close in the spring, um, but the difference in you know in China. China has coped with COVID-19 pretty pretty rapidly. Um you know what we see in places like Taiwan is I believe the statistics as of yesterday Taiwan didn't have a community-wide new case in 200 days. I believe was the statistic that came out yesterday. Um yeah, so you know in Taiwan that's 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 really good for for Buddhist tourism there. Um China as well has has been able to just temporarily closed down and then my friends you know this this week um not this week but earlier in October people were traveling and and going to two sites like the Forbidden City once again um and so we do be- definitely see people people getting out and
3: about. I mean Courtney I think it's like the difference between international and domestic you know populations so it's if you're mostly domestic and your country is all right, then, you know, Buddhism can kind of proceed just without, you know, some temples might have an international component that might be missing, that's probably not crucial. But some of the places that I've worked with are used to having a lot of international interaction. And so that's probably why they've thought to do some of the online work. But in Thailand too, it's been, you know, really well, well contained. So I think that the temples themselves are fine. Um, Kind of just lacking that extra revenue that they would have gotten from international tourists.
1: Can I add something? So, because my my work has focused on um, Buddhist monks making use of technology, the one thing that actually is really beneficial for thinking about is that when you do make use of technology, your propagation of the Dharma isn't contingent upon being together physically. Um, and so they can still spread. So similar to what Brooke was talking about of, of spreading ideas for how to cope with this time, what I also will find on you know the subscriptions that I am part of on the you know, from temples in China that I subscribe to on WeChat, you know, they might have a topic that's, that has to do with how kindness keeps loneliness at bay, these sorts of things. Right. And so I think in many ways, what we might see, or, you know, how to put down distracting thoughts. So what we might see is that Buddhists are trying to maintain interest so that when things do can fully open up again, that people then are still interested in, in going to Buddhist sites. And then, and then those swarms of tourists will return.
2: Thank you so much for for the, for your answers for this question. I know it's a very, a very st- still very recent and new development, still in development. So we'll have to see uh, what are the kind of long lasting impacts that the pandemic will have on on Buddhists everywhere. Um, and finally, we have one uh, final question uh, for a recording for our um, interview that's traditional to the New Books Network is, can you tell us about what are some of the projects you're working on right now? Yeah, maybe we'll start with uh, Dr. Shetnick. Would you like to start?
3: Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm Right now, I'm getting ready to publish a monograph a kind of related to this Edited volume and um, the monograph is called Religious Tourism in Northern Thailand: Encounters with Buddhist Monks through the University of Washington Press, and so it'll be out sometime next year. And so I hope to come back on the New Buddhist uh, New Books Network for that. For that, um, and so it looks at the. It looks. It's it's focused on Chiang Mai, Thailand, northern Thailand, and it it focuses on the. Uh, recent conjunctures of education, urbanization, and tourism in the city and how this has affected, it's kind of had a number of results like uh, affecting temple economics, attitudes towards religious others, missionization, and individual possibilities for transforming the self. So that's what I'm, you know, is coming out soon. Um, Right now, I don't really have anything I'm working on related to tourism necessarily, but, um, I've become interested in the kind of perceptions of the Thai monastic body, like the actual body and performance of monasticism in, in an embodied way in Thailand. So, um, I'm looking at a lot of media and, uh, regulations and perceptions about how the Thai monastic body should be, what is appropriate, what, what should be, um, allowed, what should not, what, what should not be allowed. And so some of this is kind of related a little bit to my discussion of tourism and that I'm looking at media and I'm looking at the, you know, what, what uh, Thai lay people think is appropriate, inappropriate, but then in this case, applying it to the the body of, of monks. Um, and I'm also uh, writing in, like a kind of introductory book to lived contemporary Theravada Buddhism for Shambhala Press. And that's a little bit more for a general audience. And that's that's really fun to write.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I saw that um, a call for papers for your uh, Buddhism and body special issues for religions. Sounds like a really interesting, um, very exciting um, collection of papers. And thank you so much. These are really exciting. And Dr. Brents?
1: Um So I, unfortunately, have been... Um delayed in some of my research because of COVID. Um, so I had a grant to go to Japan this summer to um, look at the the AI canon, the Android canon. Um, oh, yeah. cool! And so I was going to continue this idea of digitization and use of technology. And then you really go into the realm of looking at AI. So that's been put on hold. Um, and in the meantime, you know, probably many of us have, have done, I don't, I don't know is, you know, when you can't go, when you can't leave and you, and you're kind of in your own backyard, you begin to think, well, well, how can I transfer some of my, some of my research, some of my, some of my training into, into my community. And so actually, you know, what I've been working on right now um, is less academic and much more about community development and work with the community and community engagement, um, which may end up being published in, in some form. of. And so this is kind of thinking about um, about pedagogy, not just in the in the traditional um, four year college classroom, but then also engaging older folks into community um partnerships and development with um, marginalized groups within the community so I've been doing a lot more kind of a shift like um, activism in that sense I suppose in my local community Um, and then we'll kind of return back to scholarly work um, in the future but that's really kind of where my efforts have been the past six months um, during during COVID. That's so cool Courtney.
2: Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, it's it's very important to uh, reach out to our community, especially in these times.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of um, what I found is that the loneliness too factor. You know, if there's ways that we can kind of think about like using Buddhist teachings, I don't know. These are little all all are all the things that I think a lot of us would probably think about, right? Of, of what does it mean not just to write about Buddhism, but maybe be inspired. I guess <laughs> I don't know
2: definitely definitely well thank you so much for sharing that um and i'm sure i am definitely looking forward to um your future works uh hopefully when they're published you can speak to us again on the new books network <laughs> but um, thank you so much i think we've taken up a lot of your time already um again thank you so much for being on the show um, i miss these really strange times
3: thank you so much for inviting us thank you Again. Uh... all
2: right until next time